Welcome to another episode of Web Dev Weekly, the weekly podcast about web development. I'm Richard Gottlieber. And I'm Brad Garropy. And this week, we're going to be covering testing. Testing is a very big topic. You got front-end testing, back-end testing, unit testing, end-to-end, integration, visual testing. So many different ways to do this. But before we even get into it, we should really note that front-end testing and back-end testing are pretty different. I think back-end testing makes a lot of decisions for you. Richard, I know you do a lot of work in the back-end. Why don't you give your opinion on what testing is like in the back-end? So, well, I agree they're very different. I think in my mind, they're also very similar. And mostly because I probably am biased towards back-end testing. So when I think testing, and I think, you know, different languages, let's just, um, I think for the purpose of this conversation, we'll spend most of our time focused in on JavaScript. When it comes to testing there, I think about taking a function and ensuring the results of that function are what's expected. And that's why I say like front-end and back-end testing are very similar. But then there's this whole thing in the front end, the wildness that is visualization of code on a page. And that's where like my experience kind of breaks down. When it comes to backend testing, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. There's a bunch of different like ideologies around what you should do, how you should test. Personally, I'm a huge fan of just testing in production because there's no test like production. So you just ship your code and make sure it works. No, that's a terrible idea. I really like test-driven development, which means you write a test and you prepare to fail because failing is the only way forward. And after you've written your test, that's where you go from a red X to a green check mark. When my son was little and he'd ask me what I do for work, I tell him I just type on a keyboard. When in reality, I would make red X's into green check marks. That was the job. Was your company um, actually like test-driven development focused? Was that kind of a mantra passed down by the culture of your team? Or is that something that just you adopted personally? I have often been a champion for test-driven development and an unsuccessful champion in most instances. People don't seem to like testing. I don't know. What's your experience with tests? I, I like testing, man. I love seeing, I love seeing high code coverage numbers. I love seeing tests turn green, but I think there is a time and a place for it. You, when you approach testing, I think you have to have the right mindset uh, because if you're writing just some stuff for yourself or a side project, you might not want to invest a ton of time into it. But if, if you're doing a big refactor and your code base has no tests, it might be a good time to add tests. So there's definitely times when you really need to make sure your code works. And one of the crazy things about JavaScript as a language is that it has no opinions whatsoever about how to test it. And that's why I was kind of opening this episode with like talking about backend languages because so many other backend languages actually have some kind of testing framework and opinions about how to test a program written in that language built in. For instance, Python has something, PHP has something, and these languages ship with these opinions on like, if you want to test your app, do it like this. 
Whereas JavaScript is like, I don't know, go to NPM, understand the 50,000 options there are for testing frameworks, expect libraries, all these different ways to do things. And you need to invent your testing solution yourself. Yeah, I, I agree that there's definitely a much more variety of testing frameworks when it comes to JavaScript. I wonder if though, part of that is due to the fact that there's just JavaScript in general, there's such a huge variety of implementations of the language and that Point. kind of, that kind of lends itself to there being, you know, like a variety of ways to test it. You mentioned like the backend, right? And when I think about the backend, you basically have node and that's like the, the 600 pound gorilla in the room, right? There's other things like there's uh, Dino out there, you know, which I really enjoy and a few other things like that, but like it's node. And so you have like one framework that you're going to be testing against. And even then there's a few different testing frameworks for node, but they're all fairly similar. You know, when like you look at something like Mocha, for example, it, it's going to follow like a, the same basic ideology as other frameworks for the backend. I think like where it really breaks down is when you get to the front end, right? Cause if you consider like how you would test a react app versus like a vanilla JavaScript application versus a Svelte application, the frameworks themselves on the front end are so different that how you test them is going to be really different too. And they kind of all have like their different opinions on how JavaScript should work in general. Yeah, and this is where you need to define what you're testing. You can test in a lot of different methods. Some of those testing methods might be testing the actual implementation of your source code. But other types of testing methodologies, like let's say end-to-end -end testing, uh, you're actually testing what's rendered in the browser. So there's lots of lots of different layers here. The, the topmost layer of this is... I would say visual testing. You take a picture of your website, does it look the same each time? Then you kind of lift the next layer of the onion. If I click around on the website, does it work the way I expect? That would be kind of end-to-end -end testing. Uh, you go down more, there's integration testing. Does this one piece of my code talk to another piece of my code correctly? And then finally at the bottom there, you've got unit testing where does this small chunk of my code work as I intend it to. And you mentioned onion. I like to think about the layers as like a pyramid kind of, and we just walked from the top of the pyramid down. And why I like to think of it this way is the number of tests of that given type. I kind of think it should be built like that pyramid, right? Where you have the visual test that touches everything, but you don't need as many of those as you do like the unit tests down at the bottom where you're checking like an individual piece does what you expect it to do. I would expect there to be a lot more of those compared to like a visual taking like an actual comparing pixels on screenshots, basically. Yeah, you're totally right. And, uh, Ken C. Dodds, you know, has this thing he calls the testing trophy and it's a visual representation of how and where you should test. Um, we'll definitely link that in the show notes. He actually has a whole course devoted to testing, which is, I haven't taken it, but I've heard amazing reviews on it. But speaking of Ken C. Dodds, he also has one of the most popular libraries for testing JavaScript. And, you know, maybe before we jump directly into that, we can just kind of talk about like, 
what are your options if you're testing JavaScript at each one of these pieces of the triangle? Maybe we'll, we'll start at the top and, and we'll work our way down. So for visual testing, uh, there are tools like Storybook and Chromatic to help you visualize your components, take screenshots of them and diff those images to see, are there any changes? Jest, uh, which is a test runner, also has the same notion, kind of, but it snapshots the resulting HTML. And that's not exactly the same as visual testing, but you could kind of think about it in the same way. Like, here's your HTML structure. It should be the same every time. Whereas visual testing will actually render it and then take the screenshot. I think depending on your use case, both of those have their advantages and disadvantages, right? When it comes to ensuring that the result that the end user gets is consistent, getting the actual like screenshot, super valuable. If you wanted something like my mind just goes to like the old CSS Zen garden. I don't know. Have you ever seen that, Brad? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like back in the day, this was the most amazing website ever. It's basically a block of HTML and then people come in and with different CSS files, make the website looks completely different. Snapshots would be amazing for that as an example, where you want to ensure that the HTML that's output is the same. And maybe you don't care about the CSS piece, right? Cause you want it to look different and you know that that piece is going to change. So you don't care so much about the end result, but you want the content to be the same every time. So again, it's, it's different use cases, different advantages, disadvantages there. Now let's say we go down one step in the triangle after visual testing, you reach end to end testing. What this means is kind of like you're acting like the user clicking around the website, performing actions and then validating the result. And there's two pretty popular tools for this. Uh, one I would say is Cypress. It allows you to control a headless browser via code and assert on the things that happen. So, you know, click the blog page and it should load the blog page and show blog posts, things like that. Another alternative tool is Puppeteer. Uh, same style of thing, clicking around on an actual rendered page in a headless browser and then asserting on the output. Have you used either one of those libraries? Not a whole bunch. And to be honest, I've probably abused more than used the library of Puppeteer because it is a great way to automate things if you'd like to do the same thing on a web page without actually being there. Um, one example in recent history, there was a fairly popular thing that you wanted to get called a vaccine. And you had to go to a website and click through a bunch of things. And often you'd get back no appointments available. But if you wanted to make sure that website was changed, AKA appointments available, you could set up a puppeteer test and do this for you. And this is what I mean by <laughs> abusing it, right? So using the tool, but not for its necessarily intended use case. But yeah, it's, it's really great to set up. And I definitely can see from a, like ensuring that the application is functioning correctly standpoint, those kind of tools are fantastic, right? And super necessary to ensure that like all the pieces of the puzzle are working as intended when it comes to your application. Yep. And I've definitely done the same thing. I actually have a blog post where I talked about using Puppeteer to kind of uh, automate stuff on a, a website as well. And I think when it comes to bang for your buck, these end-to-end -end tests are probably pound for pound, line for line, best value you can get out of testing. 
Yes, I think they give you very high signal when you're concerned about end functionality. Again, like testing man is like this. It's a very complex topic to talk about. It at first glance, it feels like, hey, testing, the things work the way you expect them to, yes or no. Um, the reason I say like I agree when you're ensuring that everything is working, if that's the purpose of your tests, those kind of tests like Puppeteer are very poor signal as far as informing where the problem is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Low level of granularity for sure. And you know, you're right. Testing is complex because you have to choose the right type of testing for your specific application. If you're building a library, which typically have tons of edge cases need to have crystal clear error reporting, things like that, you know, end to end testing is probably not the right thing for you. You want some really, really good unit testing, but if you're building know, one package that is supposed to be used with other portions of your application in your company, integration testing is probably the way to go. And maybe that brings us to integration testing. Integration testing is keeping all other things constant and updating the, you know, testing the one thing that you're trying to release. Does it work with the rest of the ecosystem the way it should? Now, integration testing is probably the one area of testing that I have the least amount of experience because I actually find it pretty difficult to set up that, that testing environment. That means all of your other dependencies has to be installed, ready to go in their pristine condition. And then you only change, you know, the thing under test. And I found that that setup process in and of itself is pretty difficult. I agree. I also have very little experience doing proper integration tests. And I don't know, thinking about why that is, I think it's probably one, the difficulty to, I, I guess it, it, it boils down to the, the difficulty to the reward you get from it. Right. I think that when I have done things similar to integration tests, it ends up being a lot of mock data and setting up like, you know, mock responses. So you don't actually get a true integration test. You get like a, uh, I don't know what to call it, like an expected integration test, if you will, where you create the fake data that looks like what you should be getting back. And then I kind of rely on tests above the chain of testing, like in the hi higher up in the hierarchy of testing right. to ensure the integration is working. Right. And, you know, like you said, that the higher you go up on that triangle less granular you're going to be. So let's say you don't have the best integration tests, but your end-to-end -end tests are kind of covering it. You'll be able to find bugs, but your integration tests would have probably told you more effectively exactly at what boundary those bugs are happening. Right. I think integration testing mostly comes down to a DevOps problem. To deploy your services where they need to be in the right environments and then tell which service, what other ones it needs to connect to, you know, this one's got to go to prod, but this one's over here, got to go to QA. So that is actually kind of a nightmare. I find that very difficult. And I actually think, you know, it is a, it's almost a DevOps role to try to solve that problem, to get that environment up and running. Uh, but then hopefully the tests are kind of agnostic about what environment things are running in. It should just work no matter where you are. And it's up to the services to be kind of pointing to the right places, the services and the apps and all that to be, you know, have their environment variables specified right to say, you talk to QA, you talk to prod. Right. And I think you integration tests are very much like a large 
company concern when you have different teams publishing different pieces of your entire application? That's when integration tests do become important. At smaller scales, you can probably get away with end-to-end testing if you're okay with digging in a little bit to find where the failures are actually occurring. Yeah, I agree. After integration testing, we get down to unit tests. Which is the bottom of the triangle, typically the thickest, and I guess I would say the easiest to implement because it's closest to the code. You can see what you're testing, you know, and in the uh, closest to the code. You can really look at the lines of code you're actually testing and unit testing also does a great job of telling you exactly what your code coverage percentage is where all these other types of testing don't really think about that. So Brad, I've heard you say before that you love code coverage as a metric. I'm going to, I'm going to provide a hot take. I think that's a terrible metric. I don't think you're wrong by any stretch of the imagination. Code coverage doesn't indicate good tests. What it does for me though, is at least prove that I've done some due diligence, right? Because if code coverage isn't hundred percent, you know, you're actually missing conditions. So it, it is an informative way to say you didn't write a test that you should have, but on the flip side, hundred percent code coverage doesn't indicate that you tested everything you should have. Yeah. I think it can give a very false sense of security and probably I'm slightly jaded coming from larger corporations where they'll have like a, you know, you can't push code to production without 80% coverage. And so people are like, well, cool. We'll just oh. write that one test that gets you to a hundred percent coverage and boom, Bob's your uncle. We're <laughs> good to go, you know? And, and so I think that's probably why I'm a little jaded about that as a metric, but definitely using it to point out when you don't have tests is good. I think it's very easy to get that false sense of security though. that says, Hey, my code coverage is a hundred percent. That means all my tests are amazing. And that's kind of a dangerous stance in my opinion. It is. I agree. And you do, you always call me out on it and I, I don't blame you, but you know, it's just one of those things when all your tests pass and everything's green and your code coverage numbers are green. You can't, you can't replace that feeling. Can't get it anywhere else. Folks, when it comes to writing tests, do you write happy path tests or do you write edge case tests? Like how do you, how do you think about testing? And what I mean is you could spend infinite time writing tests that you expect to fail, but I think that it's very important to be conscious of use cases you don't want to work and writing the tests for those. Man, let me tell you this. This is a problem that I actually think TypeScript solves. We should really talk about the differences between, you know, what testing covers and what TypeScript and static types can cover. And a lot of these edge case scenarios that you're bringing up, what if you pass in a string to a, an add method with two numbers? TypeScript can kind of actually prevent that from happening. Yeah, so I'm, you're, you're right on there. I'm thinking more about, let's take this like, it, it's technically, I guess, JavaScript-ish. So looking at some blockchain stuff lately, there's the uh, concept of ownership of a contract. It's just like having a role within your application, right? Where you okay. only want administrators to do X. And do you write tests that say, I have the role of a user and I want to try and change 
an attribute in the application that I shouldn't be able to as a user. And so I expect this test to fail, right? I expect that when I call this function to change this attribute, I don't have permission to do it, right? But that's a very important test because you don't want to, you know, imagine you're releasing Brad's whiskey shop online. Good luck with regulations because, (laughs) you know, and it's not alcoholic whiskey. Oh, sad. But, you know, that way you can sell it everywhere. It's easy. And, or maybe you just sell, you know, like um, whiskey glasses. There we go. So Brad's (laughs) whiskey glass shop. And, you know, you want Brad, the owner, to be able to set the price. But you don't want Richard, the customer, to be able to set the price. (laughs) And, you know, do you ever, like, when you think about tests, do you think about these, I I call them, like, not happy path tests, right? Where, like, you want it to fail, but, like, you know, it's that old joke meme, like, failed successfully. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, believe it or not, I do think code coverage will help out here. Because somewhere, let's say, in your route handler, where somebody's trying to do something, you didn't take an, an, an if statement that says, no, thank you, respond back with a um, 400 or something unauthorized or, or whatever. But yeah, I, I think it depends on the type of application you are developing. There are definitely some ways in which a test should pass with a error message, if that makes sense, because you want, you want to enforce that state or tell the user they can't do something. Those are very, very important tests. And you're right. I think authentication and authorization are places where those tests have a really good value proposition. Although outside of that application, I can't think of too, too many places where that's needed off the top of my head. Yeah, I think it just depends on the actual application, right? But I do think that's something to like be aware of when it comes to testing is that sometimes those not happy path tests are very important. Although, I mean, you can write like infinity tests that fail. It's important to think of like the key ones that like you want to ensure that these things aren't allowed within a given application. Yeah, I think, I think the message here is like, don't just treat testing as a check mark and, you know, mentally clock out as you're writing your tests. You really do want the test to reflect the accuracy of your application and how it functions and all, all sorts of different inputs and outputs. So when do you write your test spread? Yeah, I write my tests after it's working. I, I definitely tend to start a lot of projects and iterate quickly. And I am the type that writes tests uh, at the end and not the beginning. But what is it like? Get it working, make it right, and then make sure it works. I think it's like the phrase where it's like write crappy code just to achieve the desired outcome, clean up your crappy code and then test your crappy code. But there's a lot of other ways to approach this. You mentioned test-driven development as one of them. Kind of walk us through what that looks like. How do you take a set of, you know, requirements, map them to tests and then implement that? Yeah. So I think probably the reason I like test-driven development is because it forces you to first of all, take a step back and not just like jump in and write code. And and the other thing that I will say about test-driven development is it ensures you write tests. Because like you mentioned, you know, you're like, you're moving fast, you're trying to get stuff done, right? So you're like chucking out code, you're working, you're working, you're working. Oh my gosh, your VP comes to you and says, hey, Brad, there's this new project that has to be done by Friday and it's Thursday. Good luck. 
you know, and you're like, well, guess there go the tests for the things I was working on because those <laughs> aren't done yet. Moving on, right? And then like this thing gets put in production and never has a test written for it. But it, it makes you step back. And what I mean by that is thinking about just like a very basic hello world, right? Like the first thing you need to do is make sure that like the function that provides hello world returns the string. That's it. It returns a string. That's your first test. The next test is that it returns a string, hello world, right? Like, so, so there we go. We've broken it down into two tests, but now you're already thinking through the fact of like, how am I going to compose this thing? Okay. Right. What does it need to do? It needs to return a string. How do I test that? So like, you're already planning out how to create the application before you even like start putting fingers to keyboard for the application. You already put them there for creating the tests, but not for actually coding the application yet, right? Yeah, and like you're you're treating the implementation as a black box where you're like, I know it needs to do this. And so that's always good because you can define your inputs and outputs and abstract away all the cruft underneath. Right. And so what I like to do personally is start with the most basic test, get that one basic test passing. Add the next test, get that test passing. I don't like to create like a suite of tests and then go fulfill them. I like to go one test at a time. And at the onset, this seems very slow. But in my opinion, like my experience is you start thinking slightly differently. And also it gives you the ability to refactor as you go with confidence. I right? think that is, is literally like the number one benefit of testing. Anytime you're changing something or refactoring, you can guarantee that your code still works and that you're right. That's a plus of test-driven development. You establish that, that ground level of acceptance very, very early on. Yeah. So, you know, you've got like maybe 10 tests done and then you realize, oh, hey, I can completely like separate out this function and dry up this piece of code so that like, I'm not, you know, repeating the same type of code over and over. And then suddenly like one piece of your testing breaks. And so you immediately know it's not doing the exact same thing it was. You know which thing it's not doing anymore makes it easier to fix. And this is one of those things where it's like, if you're making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the morning, you can just start making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, right? And so like you grab a plate, you grab the bread, you grab the peanut butter, you put the peanut butter on the bread. Then you're like, oh, I need the jelly. So you go and get the jelly. And then you realize, oh, I need a new knife because I don't want peanut butter in my jelly. And so you go do that. And then, you know, you come back and then you realize, oh, I need a Ziploc bag to put this in. So you go get the Ziploc bag, right? And so like, you're making all these trips all around your kitchen. Versus if you say, what am I going to need to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And you lay out everything you need. And then you make your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and you got it all right there in front of you, right? The setup is much longer. Time to first beginning making sandwich, longer. TTFS, uh, time to first spread. No, time to first bite, right? Or whatever, right? Like time, <laughs> time to TTSIB, time to sandwich in bag <laughs> is probably going to be lower, you know? Yeah. And that is kind of like how I view this, right? It's, it's preparing to do the work and testing is part of the work, but it's not the work of development as much. 
in most people's mind. And I think like, you know, it, it's that preparation though, where you create the environment where now you can go and be efficient in your work and you can do it with confidence. And I think that that is the one piece that is just like almost invaluable to know that like at any point I can change things and feel pretty good about it if I still get all my green check marks. Yeah, you're right. There's definitely like a lot of setup involved and Jason Langstorff has this article on a topic called yak shaving about doing the work before the work. And I think his point in here is that some preparatory work can be good as long as it's not bike shedding or arguing over things that don't matter. Some prep work is good because what it does is it allows you to move faster or more confidently later on. And one way that I kind of adopt this and bring testing into my normal workflow is by using one template repositories that in already include all the tests set up and things like that baked right in. And two, I've created a bunch of plop generators for myself where anytime I create a new, you know, function or component or hook, it scaffolds out the tests as well. So I kind of start from a base state where I don't have to like do the prep work to get to the point where I can start writing a test from the inception of that component. It's actually a hundred percent code coverage tested and I can evolve the test as I implement the component. As long as you can bake this work into your processes, I think it actually saves you time in the long run. And it's kind of like automating something away just a little bit. Yeah. And thinking about my experience being more backend heavy, part of me really likes the idea of like not using console log to ensure that you're getting what you expect along the way and instead using a test framework to ensure that you're getting what you expect along the way, right? You, you, if, if a test doesn't work, you'll inevitably need to put one in there to see like, what the heck is going on here? But instead of being like, okay, I expect, you know, two plus two to equal four. And so I'll just log, you know, two plus two cool. It is what I expect it to be. Why not make that a test? Yeah. And then you don't have to do that. You don't have to look and see, yes, this is what I expected to be. It gets a nice green check mark. Yeah, sure. And now I think at the end of the day, when it comes to setting up testing for front end, one of the biggest things you're going to use is Jest. Jest is going to be there for so many of your tests, but Jest is a special beast, mostly because if you're using it to test the front end, you don't have a browser. Jest is a node application. And most of the frustrations that you're going to have when setting up your testing environment is going to come from the fact that Jest is using another library called JS DOM to emulate the document, the browser, the, the DOM, so that when you render something, you know, it, it is holding in memory what it thinks to be the HTML representation of whatever you rendered. JS DOM is very special and the Jest environment is special in that you're not going to have access to browser APIs or the window object or fetch calls, all these things. And so when you're really setting up your environment for front end testing, you have to consider how do I mock out all of these different things that I normally depend on if I'm testing in a browser. Now, of course, if you go up that triangle, Cypress and Puppeteer and your end to end testing aren't going to care because they are really running in browsers. Although they're headless, you can't see it. They are running in a real browser. And same thing with visual testing, you're actually rendering it. So it's gone through a browser's rendering cycle, but Jess brings in a ton of complexity with mocks, 
and how to get TypeScript to work with it because it's sitting inside of your development environment. And let me tell you, it's probably one of the most frustrating things I've ever had to set up. And that is why I lean so heavily on my templates and automations and generators just to make it easier. You share the same frustrations with, you know, the, the unit testing situation in JavaScript? I think when it comes to the front end, yes, for sure. I think too, testing, man, just thinking about like testing on the front end and even like, you know, headless rendering of pages, you still end up like web development is this weird beast where you are creating content but then you're also relying on like the window that people view it through being the same, right? And, and, and not so only like, that, but like the window that people are viewing it through, you don't even control and it can run on many different devices and it can be one of many different window types, right? You got all your browsers yes. and all your different devices. Yeah, that's so. what I was going to say. Like, you know, the, the whipping boy of this is old, you know, Internet Explorer. And that's like saying like you, you build this beautiful like display in front of your store, Brad, but then some people, when they come to the window, it's like a funhouse mirror. And so like, they look at your display and like, what is this garbage? You know? And like, you can't help the fact that the window they brought with them distorts everything, but like, yeah, it's this weird, really weird environment to try to test when it comes to front end, ensuring that everything looks and behaves exactly as you expect it. And yeah, like just with like mocking up all this stuff and dealing with the Dom is very tricky. I very much like working on the back end where, you know, it's just text yep. and does the text do what it's supposed to do at the yeah, end you, of the day? You really, you don't have a lot of these problems when you're just testing a node process at the end of the day, you're essentially just comparing objects to, you know, make sure your tests actually work. You don't have to worry about anything in the DOM, which does get very hairy. But I think testing is one of those absolutely necessary skills. You know, they say be a T-shaped developer where you go deep on one area. It doesn't have to be testing. But testing is something that you're going to have to have in your tool belt. You're going to be asked to do it if you work at any kind of big company. And it's never a bad skill to have. So with that, we're going to wrap up this week's Web Dev Weekly. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe in your podcast player and definitely check us out on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes. Remember, we do have that Discord community. Feel free to join and share what you're working on or ask for help with testing. That link is going to be in the show notes as well. We'll see you all next week. Mm -hmm.